All right, good morning again. I forgot to mention this morning, um, you know, preachers often use this time, like, you know, this platform to let everybody know their favorite football teams and stuff. And I don't get to do that very often because the Jaguars don't win very often. But they won last night, so that was pretty cool. I'm, I'm pretty tired, but they won. It was pretty cool. So I figured I'd do that just to be like a typical, you know, your standard preacher guy, get up here and, you know, brag for a second. But it was cool, so we'll see what happens, but that's all I wanted to say. Anyway, let's, uh, let's get into 1 Samuel uh, today. Uh, last week, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 25. We talked about an interesting case between... Uh, David and Nabal and Abigail, and we talked about two things in particular from 1 Samuel chapter 25 that we wanted to kind of take away from this, that we need to practice awareness, and we saw how Abigail was able to just be aware in the situation that she was in. She was able to act quickly, and she was not only beautiful but intelligent, and she was able to really save a lot of lives that day because David was about to take a lot of lives that day, and her good judgment in that way allowed David to not seek vengeance on Nabal, but rather kind of go about and and God takes vengeance on Nabal for himself. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was that we need to practice patience more often in our lives. And last week, if you remember, if you weren't here, I told you to look to your neighbor and tell them they weren't that special, right? It's something you don't typically do in church, but it's something that we need to to remind ourselves of. Uh, We need to remind ourselves that we aren't the center of the universe. And whatever kingdoms that we're creating for ourselves are going to crumble sooner or later. When we recognize that we aren't that special, we recognize just how special God is and and the things that God is able to do in our lives when we allow him to work in our lives. So that was last week in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Today we're going to be in chapters 26 and 27. But before we get there, I want you to think of a time you were hopeless. Think of a time you were hopeless. It could be a big thing. It could be a smaller thing. But a time in your life where you felt particularly hopeless. I'm not going to share with you mine, but when I, when I thought about this, a couple movies came to mind. Something that we can kind of all relate to, hopefully. The first thing that came to mind was this little guy. Uh, Simba uh, from Lion King. I, I'm a firm believer that Lion King is one of the most overrated movies of all time. It's a great movie, don't get me wrong, but it's overrated. Um, but to me, this, this, uh, this character, Simba, goes through a very hopeless situation, right? If you remember the movie, he's kind of tricked by his uncle Scar that he's actually the one that killed his dad, Mufasa, right? And the whole movie is kind of him coming to grips with that's not actually what happened, right? But if you remember this moment, actually, not exactly this moment, but after... Simba kind of has to run away, and he, and he runs away not only for a few days or a few weeks, but for a very long time. We have the sequence where he's walking across the log, and he's doing this, and he's growing, right? He's there for a while, and we look at this as in the movie, and we're like, why couldn't he just go home? Why didn't he just, you know, spend a few weeks and then maybe possibly go home and see what really took place? But that's not what happens, because Simba is hopeless, Right? He's hopeless. He's lost his father. It's his fault. Everybody hates him. Bad things are going to happen to me if I go back home. He is hopeless. And his move in this situation is to leave and to go elsewhere and to stay elsewhere until the very end of the movie. You've seen it, right? He, there's some redemption had there. But that is kind of an image of hopelessness. I also thought about this movie, The Outsiders. You've seen The Outsiders maybe recently, maybe a long time ago. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. It's an easy read. It's an afternoon read. 
But uh, two boys here, uh, the young boys, Pony Boy and Johnny, they get into a little bit of a predicament here where they accidentally kill a person who is fighting them, right? And their first reaction is to go to one of their idiot friends, say, what do I do? And their idiot friend said, leave town. And they leave town, and it's a great thing to go maybe watch on YouTube the sequence that Pony Boy and Johnny go through. They're living in this abandoned church. They're taking the money they could scrape together to buy bread and bologna cards, the book Gone with the Wind. They dye their hair bleach blonde. They cut their hair with a knife. They do all these crazy things when in reality they should have just told somebody what happened maybe. They probably wouldn't have been in that much trouble because they were being physically attacked, right? Maybe things would have been different, but I'm not going to spoil the movie or the book if you haven't read or seen this. Uh, But to me, they embody this idea of hopelessness. What else can I do but run away? What else can I do but dye my hair, cut my hair, do all these crazy things? This is the very best thing I can do in this situation because I am out of options. And I'm sure there's plenty of other movies we could talk about this morning. And I I like these because they kind of help us see our lives in a different light. But whether it's a movie you're thinking about right now or some time where you've actually felt hopeless in your life, I want you to hold on to that feeling this morning. We're going to return to this feeling of hopelessness a little bit later on. But before we get there, I want to talk about where we are in chapter 26. So Saul went, and this is in verse 2, so Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to guess what? Search there for David. This guy is obsessed with David. I wish that Saul would have pursued God like he pursues David. But we are in a very familiar place here where Saul is going after David. Saul is still on the run, still in the wilderness, still seeking refuge in whatever place he could possibly find. And Saul is still after him. And you're thinking, this is not new, Jimmy. Well, this isn't going to be new either. Continuing on in verse 7. So David and Abishai went to the army at night. And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as he lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about them nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. A little bit of deja vu. Remember this? A little tiny bit. A couple chapters ago, we had a very similar situation. But this one's a little bit different. It seems to me that David's a little bit more bold here, right? Because if you remember in chapter 24, when David and Saul have this interaction, it's kind of the opposite, Right Where David and his men are kind of in this cave-like area, and Saul kind of stumbles into this area to relieve himself. Whether that be using the restroom or sleeping, we don't know, we don't really care. But whatever it is, Saul kind of comes into the clutches of David, and then David has to make a choice. Right, And David eventually chooses to do a similar thing right here, right, where he cuts the end of his robe, and he says, Hey, Saul, I could have killed you if I wanted to, but I didn't. 
It's a little bit different this time because instead of Saul kind of stumbling into David's clutches, it's David going into Saul's area, his safety area, not only within his tent, but around his guys, right? His chief uh, bodyguards or whatever you want to call it. There's a spear literally right next to Saul ready for battle at any time. But David, he's crafty. Remember, that's how Saul describes David even. He's crafty, he's cunning, he's bold, and he goes and he takes the spear and the water jug as a symbol like he did last time. And if you were to continue reading, David calls out and Saul knows exactly who's calling his name. He calls him, David, is that you, my son? That's kind of a bogus way to be calling him right after all they've been through. My son, what, what is this endearment you're trying to convey? There's this reverence, I'm sure, that Saul does kind of apply to David, uh, but it's very much misplaced with his actions, right? But com- compare these two events. They're, they're very similar, but they're very different. But what is also interesting to look at is how David responds after either of these events. Remember, two weeks ago we talked about this, and last week Nabal happens right after David has this interaction with, with Saul's cloak, Right? And David has this fiery reaction where he's going to go and kill hundreds of men because Nabal refuses to give him sheep and bread and wine and whatever he wants. So he has this fiery kind of overreaction after this story takes place with Saul in the cave. Now compare that to what happens next. David has this interaction with Saul, and this is what his response is going to be. David thought to himself, this is chapter 27, one of these days... I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. You see the difference? You have this overreaction with Nabal where he's going to bring his men and inflict as much damage as possible. And now we have this interaction with Saul, and it's the exact opposite. It's almost like this folding has taken place. Maybe I am reading into this, but I think we've all come to know David a little bit better through this study as an actual human being. But I sense a little bit of deflation here. One of these days, I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. This is the same guy who is bringing cheese and bread to his brothers when they're about to face off against Goliath. And he's like, what are you guys doing? God's going to win this victory. This is the same guy who's killed tens of thousands, right? They sing songs about this guy. And he has this interaction where he could once again take the life of Saul, and this is his response. One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. This defeat is kind of taking over. This wave of just, I'm done, I'm through with this. It's over. Saul's going to kill me because I'm not going to kill him. And so this is what takes place next. Verses 5 and following. David, he goes and he seeks refuge with the Philistines. And then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I, might live there, that I may live there. Why should your servant live in a royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. And it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Gerashites, the Gizarites, and the Amalekites. From the ancient times, these people have lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked the area, he did not leave a man or a woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels, and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. 
When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of Jeremiah, and against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or a woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. And I'll, I'll admit to you, and I want to also be as transparent as possible. Whenever I, some, I come to something in Scripture that I'm confused by, i got to read it over and over again. I want to just admit that this chapter confused me a lot this week. Um, I didn't really know what was going on because it seemed so out of character for David to be doing these things, right? Like I said, we've gotten to know David as the man, and I've, I've had questions. Is he giving up? Is he actually living with the Philistines and doing their bidding for him? Is he kind of just aligning with them? Or is, is there a chance that David is acting as like a double agent, you know, deep undercover in Philistine land, in the belly of the beast? Is he there doing these things for God without saying anything? But when I read this, I, I'm also kind of reminded of someone we've heard about before, Okay. I heard this name, Akish, and I was like, well, this guy sounds familiar to me. And it should be a little bit familiar to you guys as well, because in 1 Samuel chapter 21, we've already met Akish. David took these words to heart. This is in chapter 21, verses 12 through 15. This is when he's on the run from Saul, like, like he always is, it seems. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Akish, king of Gath. Did you hear that? Very much afraid of Akish. King of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Akish said to his servants, Look at the man, look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? This is a long, you know, far removed situation from where we are today in chapter 27, right? Where we have this man that David is afraid of. David is afraid of this guy. I don't know what he's up to, but it must not be good if David is afraid of him. And now at this time, he's so afraid of him, he's acting like a crazy guy to get away from him. But now fast forward to several chapters, he's, he's in this desperate place where he is going and seeking refuge with them. This seems so odd. But what really kind of boils down to is that this is what hopelessness looks like. You see what I mean? This is what hopelessness looks like. This is the only option that David seems to have in his mind. Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so therefore I can go live with these people and I can be safe from this guy who's been pursuing me for years. But while I'm there, I'm going to do some things that might not be so great. Um, kind of going to this line, this is the very best thing that I can do. And now if we were to sit in this, if this was a Bible class and we were in a circle and we had our Bibles open, and I, and I posed the question, class, what do you think would be a better option for David to do? I'm sure all of us could come up with a hundred different things that David could have done differently. You could have said, well, he could have, you know, He's, he's defeated Goliath. Why isn't he more confident? He did all these other things. He could do this thing as well. We could have all these different reasons or all these different things that David could have done differently. And we could nod our heads and we could have a great Bible class and say we're very smart 
and well-educated people and feel good about ourselves. But the problem is, is that David isn't a problem that we can fix, right? David's a human being with human being feelings. I'm reminded of that scene in Apollo 13, right, where they have that malfunction on the spaceship and the people in the room have to do all the finagling to fix the thing up there down here. And they have all this, these smart people getting all these problem-solving techniques together, and they finally have a solution to fix the problem up in space. And we want to do that sometimes with Scripture and say, David, why didn't you have more faith, man? It's really, really easy for us to say those things. It is not easy to say those things when you are the hopeless one. Where you look around and you see nothing but darkness, you see nothing but pain, and you say, the very best thing that I can do is to go in the opposite direction of where God is calling me to be. And again, that sounds silly for us to say, but I guarantee you many people in this room have felt this way before. I have no other options but to blank. I have no other options but to do the exact thing I do not want to do. Hopelessness makes our minds finite. The things that the, our problem-solving abilities are, are gone. Hopelessness makes us feel darkness in, in, in a different way. And I, wanna incur, I, wanna, I don't want to be a downer this morning, okay? I don't want this to be a, a sad thing. I want this to be a relational thing where we can see the hopelessness that David's experiencing and kind of see how in our lives where we feel hopeless, we can have a different outcome as well. We can recognize that David is a real person and he feels alone and that we are real people and we often feel alone. And this hopelessness cycle brings us to the place of desperation where we look at the things around us and we say, this is the very best thing that I could do at this time, when in reality it might not actually be. So the question that I want us to think about, our final kind of thought this morning, is what do David's actions tell us about how we process hopeless situations? What do David's actions tell us about how we process hopeless situations? The very first thing, and I've said it a couple times, is the best thing, air quotes, isn't always the best thing. The best thing isn't always the best thing. If you have your Bibles open, I don't want to go back to all those slides before, but if you have your Bibles open, you can see the things that, that David was doing. And it doesn't make sense for the person that we know about and the person that we've, we've come to learn about through this whole series. Uh, in uh, chapter 27, verse 8, Now David and his men went up to and raided the Gerashites, the Gizarites, and the Amalekites. All these people are opposing of God, right? So it, it, in a way, it's like, okay, the best thing is for me to go and do these things. I'm still going to be the anointed one of God. I'm still going to go carry out justice to the nations. I'm still going to do all the things you want me to do, God, but I'm just going to do it in Philistine territory. Is that okay? The thing that I find so interesting about this entire chapter is that David doesn't really have any interaction this whole thing. All of his interactions are with his new friend, Akish. Did you notice that? He's reporting to Akish. He's saying, give me this land, Akish. I did these things today, Akish. He's not talking to God anymore. The best thing in his mind was going to Akish, but that was definitely not the best thing for him to do. But that is what hopeless situations turn us into. 
They got us reporting to people that we don't need to be reporting to. They got us thinking about things and doing things we ought not be doing. But it might seem like gift wrapped like the best thing that we could possibly do. It looks nice with a ribbon on top. But it is absolutely not the best thing for us to do in our walks. Have you ever been there before? You don't have to nod your heads. I, I, I don't want to, you know, make it like that. I, sometimes I ask you to nod your heads and shake your heads uh, to see if you're awake. But this morning, I, I want you to think about that place where you've been hopeless and where you've made these decisions. Because unfortunately, as we've read in 1 Samuel and as we read through all of Scripture, history repeats itself. And the last time you're hopeless is not going to be the last time you're hopeless. The best thing isn't always the best thing. And second is that humans, we're very good at convincing ourselves that we're right. So like I said, he's going out and he's carrying out this this punishment, this justice towards the nation. But what really confused me is about the way that David spoke to Akish when he would ask him where he went raiding today. Verse 10. David would say, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of Jeremel, against the Negev of the Kenites, now, that word Negev can be translated to mean kind of like desert or outskirts of. So it's like David is, is responding to his new lord, in a way, lowercase l, the person who he's kind of siding with at this time. And he's kind of reporting half-truths, right? Because Akish is really pleased with this information. Good job, David, right? He says in verse 12, Akish trusted David. And remember in, first, in chapter 21, they were not allies, but now they're at a place where he's trusting David. He has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. These half-truths that David is telling not only himself, but to Akish, he's really, I think, convincing himself that he's okay where he's at. So much of this behavior is so familiar uh, with the, the, the things I've learned about addiction and the things that I've learned about codependence, where it's like, I can stop whenever I want to behavior, right? I can, I can live in the Philistines, and I can still be the Lord's anointed. You remember that I had the opportunity twice to kill Saul, and I didn't do those things. Therefore, I am good. I mean, I'm, I'm going out here, and I'm, I'm inflicting justice, right? The Amalekites, we're going to read about them next week, actually, again, because if you remember a while ago, when Saul really had his last straw with God, it's because he didn't kill the Amalekites. I find that interesting here in this chapter. That's, that's the last group that's mentioned that David's going out there and going after. Maybe even in his mind, David knows that. I don't know. But there seems to be something here that David is telling himself this narrative that simply isn't all true. And I guarantee, I know for a fact, everybody in this room has told themselves and others half-truths to make themselves feel better. When you're in a hopeless situation, when darkness is, is, is around you, half-truths become your ultimate ally, the coping mechanism that you need to continue going on. I'm not as bad as this person, therefore I am good. I'm not doing that sin, therefore I am better than that person. You realize how stupid that sounds? I don't, I'm not supposed to say stupid. In Mississippi, they got really upset with me saying stupid. But I, I don't know. You'll tell me afterwards um, about that. Um, <laughs> but it is kind of dumb, right? 
when we can look from the outside and we, and we can see it, we can, we can look at those actions and say those are dumb. And we can look at the actions of David and say, David, this is not the very best thing that you can do. It's really easy to say those things when you're the person looking, but when you're the person that is hopeless, it's not so easy. It's not so easy recognizing the half-truths and recognizing just how far you've fallen, recognizing just how far that addiction has taken you away from being where you need to be in life. Not just with God, but the people in your life. But we are very good at convincing ourselves we are right. If you want any proof of this, just go on Facebook today. Actually, never go on Facebook. Um, that's, a, that's the worst place. Because everybody out there is convincing themselves they're right. Everybody's hearing the same echo chamber of what they want to hear. They're being convinced over and over again that their position is the right position. And when it comes to your, your views in life, that, that, that's, that's your business. But when it comes to your spiritual life, that's God's business, right? And when you're convincing yourself you're right, when you're obviously not, and you're, you're falling further and further away from God, I want to wake you up this morning. I want, I want Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 27, I want David's life to wake you up this morning to recognize that you've got to stop lying to yourself and start recognizing just how hopeless you are because when you that's where the transformation can take place. We're going to see, we're, I'm not going to go into, into 2 Samuel with you guys, okay? We're going to stop with 1 Samuel, but you're going to see the life of David has these peaks and valleys. He, he has these moments of just ultimate glory, and he has these moments where it's like, dude, do you even know who God is? And that's kind of one of the great things about David is how relatable he is and how recognizing that he's not just a VBS character, but he's a real-life human being that convinces himself of half-truths, that, that tries to do the right thing. My prayer is that you can see yourself in his shoes. And I, my, my prayer this morning also, specifically about what we're talking about today, is that if you feel hopeless this morning, I hope that you can kind of look in the mirror and see David standing. I've been there. And maybe it's not David, but it might be somebody in this room. I pray pretty much every Sunday that whatever the Spirit needs to convict you of, the Spirit convicts you of. If you're in a place where you need convicting, that's great. But if you're in a place where you're close to God, be the person who's pouring into other people. Pray the prayer that when you come here or wherever you go, that whoever needs some kind of, I don't know, advice, help, support of any kind, help me to be that person for them to find that hopeless person, to speak light into the darkness that they're searching for because they're searching for better things and they can't find it. My prayer is that you can be that person for them and the vice versa. If you're that person searching, my prayer is that you can find that person you can find that support that you need. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this day and I thank you for giving us uh, this time to really just reflect on hopelessness. It's not something that we really like to think about. It's not something that we, a place we want to be. To be without hope is to, is to be in a really desperate place. To look around and see darkness and to not really know what to do next is very, very intimidating. And you might look to the best things in life that really aren't the best things. And I pray that whatever you're going through, you can recognize that um, you're not going through it alone. At the very least, recognize that you're not going through it alone with God and Jesus and the Spirit. But even beyond that, you have this church family here to help and support you. 
If you don't feel connected to this, I pray that you find ways to get involved. I I pray that you find ways to insert yourself into the community so that you can find real spiritual uh, companionship here. And God, most importantly, I pray for those who are feeling hopeless, hopeless at this very moment. I pray that whatever darkness they're experiencing, that there might be light. And I pray that they're able to be uh, sustained by your spirit and in your peace. So just let me pray. Amen. So we want to offer an invitation now. If you're feeling hopeless, if, you, if you're feeling anything that you want to share with somebody, we invite you to come forward. But if you're not going to come forward, I pray that you talk to somebody today as we stand and sing.